Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional support water bottle, and that steamy beet treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. We don't raise our hands in this country to decide if something is wrong or not. Some things are just wrong, and we elect our representatives in order to have them stand up and say so. This is Sarah. This is Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Everyone and Shana Tova to our Jewish friends celebrating Rosh Hashanah right now. We are so excited to be back with you after a wonderful weekend in Louisville. We cannot thank Amy McGrath and her team, all our amazing volunteers, Matt, Valerie, Elizabeth, and of course, all of you who turned out for our sold-out show. We had a packed house and a fantastic conversation in Louisville this weekend. You still have an opportunity to see the Nuance Nation tour. We will be in Washington, D.C. and Dallas. Tickets are still available, and the link is in the show notes. So we really want to see 
you. We've gotten lots of questions about whether or not the interviews will be shared in full on the podcast feed. And the answer is no. We wanted to give a special treat to the people that are coming to Nuance Nation. We will be sharing a compilation of all our interviews in a later episode, but the full interviews are available only for those who show up in person for the Nuance Nation tour. So make sure you're one of those people and come see us in Washington, D.C. or Dallas. We also will be in Denver later this week for the Evolving Faith Conference. We hope to see many of you there. There are also digital passes available for that event, so you can check those out. And on October 6th at 9 a.m., we will be at Stella's Gourmet Coffee and Such to say hello to everyone who came into Denver for Evolving Faith or who lives in Denver. So feel free to stop by. We'd love to meet you. It would be wonderful if everything would stop in the world so that we could just focus on our stuff here in the United States, but there's a lot going on around the globe. So we're going to do a little bit of news first, and then in our main segment, we will get up to speed on what's happening with impeachment in Ukraine and the president of the United States' reaction to all of that. We'll end, as always, with what's on our minds outside of politics, and I just am going to tease here that I want to give you an update on Big Brother. Sarah, I know you're excited. <laughs> okay. Well, speaking of Big Brother, that's actually a great segue into one of the biggest stories around the globe over the weekend, which were the violent protests in Hong Kong. So the Hong Kong protests are entering their 17th week, and they have really dialed up in the past few days because today is the 70th anniversary of communist rule in China. As you can imagine, pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong are not exactly excited to celebrate this anniversary, but it's a big deal for China. China, which means it's a big way for the protesters to send a message. China puts on a big military display. In previous years, they've had 12,000 troops march through Tiananmen Square. They expect those numbers to be even bigger this year. And so with the trade war already giving lots of negative press to China and its economy, Hong Kong and specifically the pro-democracy protesters saw this as their chance to continue to protest and make their messages heard. Unfortunately, many of the protests turned violent. There were lots of reports of police brutality. The police fired canister after canister of tear gas. And then the protesters fought back with blockades, blocking the streets, with throwing stones taken up from the sidewalks and streets, and with gasoline bombs thrown back in defense at the police. We are not helping this situation with our trade war with China. Hong Kong's value to the world has often been as a hub that is kind of a bridge between the outside world and mainland China. And with the increasing friction between China and the United States, there are commentators who think that Hong Kong's value as that hub is diminishing. And it's really jeopardizing Hong Kong's place in the world long term. The New York Times quotes Lynette Ong, a China expert at the University of Toronto, as saying, after all of this, we will see a different Hong Kong. The very Mm. reason for Hong Kong's existence, the rule of law, respect for the police, for public institutions, respect for the judiciary, the bureaucracy, everything has been eroded. This is a really existential time for Hong Kong. And having it come at the same time as this anniversary of communist rule in China, when Xi Jinping is engaged in his domestic grab for power in making his term basically unlimited and his geopolitical jockeying for power with the United States. It's just there's a lot going on here. I am impressed. 17 weeks to sustain protests. It's amazing. And I don't think the protesters in Hong Kong are going anywhere. They are really fighting for their country. 
We had a listener reach out on Instagram and say, I don't understand the goal of these protests, because even if many of their demands are met, and many have been, the original legislation to extradite political prisoners to China or anybody else charged with a crime was withdrawn officially. But she asked, even if they succeed in having these demands met, we're coming up on the deadline where we have one country, two systems that was set up when Hong Kong was released from British rule and turned back over to the Chinese government. That that deadline is approaching. And so what do we see happening? What are they what are the protesters, the pro-democracy protesters who existed before this bill came before the Hong Kong legislator? What's their goal? What is the the long view of how they could exist separate from China if they're, they imagine a scenario when China would ever allow that to happen? And the answer is, I don't know. And I don't know. And I don't really feel like it's my place to advocate for one or the other because I don't live in Hong Kong. And so the people who do and the the pro-democracy protesters, particularly the the young ones, the people who are going to be living way past the deadline of this agreement have demands and they do have a vision. And it does seem to be, if not separate from China, fiercely independent. And I think as the weeks of the protests continue, we'll have a better understanding of where they envision all this going. But the Chinese government most certainly envisions a more forceful, physical clash with these protesters. Let's turn our attention now to the Middle East. 60 Minutes made a lot of headlines this weekend, Mm -hmm. but Nora O'Donnell sat down with Saudi Arabia's crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, and it was a wide-ranging, pretty significant interview. Here are the salient points as I read them. Mohammed bin Salman said that he did not personally order the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Now, that is against the weight of intelligence that our Mm -hmm. intelligence community has reviewed. But he says he absolutely did not order that murder. And he said, this was a heinous crime, but I take full responsibility as leader in Saudi Arabia, especially since it was committed by individuals working for the Saudi government. And Nora O'Donnell asked, what does that mean that you take responsibility? He said, when a crime is committed against a Saudi citizen by officials working for the Saudi government as a leader, I must take responsibility. This was a mistake, and I must take all actions to avoid such a thing in the future. And what really interested me in this interview, Sarah, is that as they went on in their discussion, Nora O'Donnell says, hey, the American government thinks that you did this. What do you have to say about that? And he said, no, there is not an official statement Mm -hmm. announced by the American government in this regard, which is a problem. Mm -hmm. As we were doing research for this episode, I was digging into a story we're going to talk about in the main segment, which is the reporting that the FBI is continuing to investigate Hillary Clinton's emails. And around the same time, I was looking at stories about Khashoggi in this interview and the fact that the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo called for an investigation into the murder, which has never happened. And I thought, I cannot believe that we are investigating Hillary Clinton's emails, but we have not launched an investigation into the brutal murder of this man. 
that the entire international community places at the feet of the crown prince. I'm just I'm blown away by that. And what is our Congress to do now that he has said he has at least admitted that the Saudi government was involved? Right. People working for the Saudi government did this. Now, he says, how was I supposed to know? We've got lots of people working for the Saudi government. I take responsibility, but it wasn't me. I mean, what is our Congress going to do with that? Our Congress that has several times tried to prompt the administration to make an official statement about this and to do something. And, And our president just continues to talk about it like there is no set of facts here that would warrant materially changing our relationship with Saudi Arabia. Because it's so transactional in his vision, because there is so much money at play with Saudi Arabia, then nothing can trump that. Hmm. Um, Nothing can overcome the fact that there's so many economic reasons to ally ourselves with Saudi Arabia. And so what is to the Saudi Arabian government, the crown prince himself, from engaging in these heinous acts? So in addition to the portion of the conversation that focused on Jamal Khashoggi, the Crown Prince also answered some questions from Nora O'Donnell about the attack on Aramco. And he says that Iran did it and he doesn't think there's any strategic goal. They're just stupid. He said only a fool would attack 5% of global supplies. The only strategic goal is to prove that they are stupid. And that is what they did. I can imagine that that's going over real well in Iran today. It just come on. Are we are we supposed to take that seriously? Are we supposed to take that Iran is just trying to show its longtime foe Saudi Arabia that they're stupid? I don't I don't even know why they kept that in the why they edited that into the interview, honestly. So Mike Pompeo said that the attack on Aramco was an act of war and the crown prince agreed with that and said that he hoped a diplomatic solution would be available because of how catastrophic a military solution would be. And he expressed support for President Trump trying to negotiate a new deal with Iran. We'll put in the show notes a link where you can read the transcript of that entire interview. But it was very interesting and, in my view, unsettling. We also had several immigration decisions come down from federal judges with regards to several of the policies within the Trump administration. We had a federal judge block the new rules that allowed the government to detain migrant children with their parents indefinitely. As we've reviewed several times on the podcast, the Flores settlement says that the federal government can only hold children for a finite amount of time. So I I, I just don't even know the legal basis for which the Trump administration just showed up and said, "Eh, we're going to reject the settlement and hold children and families indefinitely. You can hear a lot more about this decision on last night's Nightly Nuance, but the Trump administration effectively decided that it would use the Administrative Procedures Act rulemaking process to just on its own in the Flores Agreement and make its own new regulations. And the judge who heard this case in the Central District of California said that was Kafka-esque and is not going to happen, that the Flores Agreement is the rule of law. She can't, by judicial fiat, declare it over. If Congress doesn't like it, it can do something about it, but the administration cannot do it by just announcing new rules. The administration has sort of had a sustained effort to ignore the Administrative Procedures Act by either 
not giving sufficient justifications. You saw that in Justice Roberts and him rejecting the reasoning behind the census decision to include a citizenship question. And they continue to either ignore the process by not allowing for public comment or presenting very little if no justification and reasoning for their decisions. And I think they're seeing the impact of that with other rejection of their new policies. Another federal judge blocked ICE from using a flawed database to target immigrants. So this was specifically with regards to the way that ICE issues detainers to local law enforcement officials. So if someone is arrested, then ICE will issue a detainer and say, we want you to keep them for us. But they were using this database that had sort of infamous for bad data, bad sources, was leading to some really awful outcomes for immigrants that had been detained by local law enforcement officials. And so this judge says, No, you can't do that anymore. It's not that you can't issue detainers, but you most certainly can't issue them based on this database. A third federal judge in like a 48-hour period, these decisions came rapidly after one another, blocked the administration from allowing immigration officers to deport people seeking entry into the country before they could appear in front of a judge. The administration is likely to appeal these decisions. The administration has put out a strongly worded statement that they continue to try to enforce Congress's law and the federal courts continue issuing these nationwide injunctions preventing them from doing that. But this move to try to prevent people from seeing an immigration judge appears in those regulations trying to circumvent the Flores Agreement as well. Mm -hmm. So you see the Trump administration wanting to get away from due process around immigration in favor of expedience. And that is always going to provoke the ire of federal courts. So we're in for a lot more decisions like this, I think. And we're in to see a lot of these decisions making their way up to the Supreme Court as the Trump administration really tramples on some foundational principles around our system of justice in the way that it's trying to enforce immigration laws. This week, we wanted to complement another aspect of law enforcement and the justice system that's out there really fighting and fighting hard to combat the opioid crisis. The New York Times has a story This weekend about a 36-year-old doctor in Virginia who was supplying opioids to patients in five states, and he is facing life in prison for this truly criminal conduct. And you see it with all the state's attorneys generals working to get the best possible outcome for their states and for recovery efforts from the Sackler family. You see it in even federal efforts to provide resources to areas of the country that are still struggling and struggling mightily with opioid crisis. This particular doctor that the New York Times profiled the case of, I mean, it's not even close to an office. They talk about how his office didn't have basic medical supplies. The receptionist lived out of a back room during the work week. The office was frequently open past midnight. He didn't take insurance. People came in with cash and credit cards. He took in over $700,000 over two years. And it's just you know, clearly a pill mill that has impacted so many lives and so many people. And so we want to share another resource for those of you interested in learning more about the opioid crisis. We recently met best-selling author Stephanie Whittles-Walks, who hosts Last Day, a new podcast from Lemonada Media. And Stephanie 
lost her own brother, comedian Harris Whittles, to an overdose in 2015. So she is zooming in on the last day of a person's life to figure out how they got there and then zooming back out to tell the bigger cultural picture around what happened and what we can do about it. It is a fantastic podcast. We suggest that you check it out as we all continue to think more about this epidemic in our country and how we can be part of some solutions to very, very hard problems. Up next, we're going to catch up on the latest developments with regards to the impeachment inquiry. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional support water bottle, and that steamy beach read. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year is going by so quickly, and I had a little bit of a moment of panic about it this week. I thought to myself, I'm losing track of time. It's going so fast. It's going to be December before I know it. My kids are growing up, and I just kind of was spinning out. And I stopped, and I closed my eyes, and I pictured my last therapist, who I haven't seen since the end of 2020. But I remember the way he talked me through these issues, and I sort of channeled his energy and put my feet on the ground and thought, this is just how time feels now, and there's nothing wrong with that or right about it. It just is. Those skills that I learned in therapy are so important to helping me take a second to celebrate what's going right and decide what I want to adjust for the rest of the year. If you're thinking of starting therapy, which I cannot recommend enough, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot slash Pantsuit. The second most stressful thing after planning a trip is packing for it. This is true. This is a true story. I have just told you the clothes I have don't fit. They don't go together the way I want them to or I'm missing some essential piece. And then I discovered Quince. It's my go-to for high-quality vacation essentials. Like this premium European linen dress that's going to get us all through the heat wherever we're traveling. Blouses and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, premium luggage options, and so much more. All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than their similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to all of us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I got big plans for my Quince chiffon pleated skirt in Japan. They like a loose, flowy look over there to battle the heat. I will be adopting that strategy with that skirt. Pack your bags with high quality essentials from Quince. Go to quince.com slash pantsuit for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E 
quince.com slash pantsuit to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash pantsuit. It strikes me that many of the developments over the weekend are hard to parse out from messaging, tweets, interviews to get to what actually changed and when are we just talking about how everyone is talking about the impeachment inquiry? I think that's a good observation. It is driving me bananas, I have to tell you. I have developed an impeachment self-care rule for myself, which is that if I am going to listen to or watch something, so do anything other than read about this whole situation, I have to be either outside or moving my body in some way. (laughs) And then my second rule is that if I'm actually going to sit down and read, I have to have a beverage or food that comforts me while I do it. So this morning, I made over the weekend this berry compote with like mint and cardamom in it. It's fantastic. So I just slathered it on a bagel as I did my show prep today after I did some yoga poses watching Showtime's The Circus because (laughs) I cannot take this information in without like a little, hey, remember, the world is still an okay place to be in. Well, let's get to the actual changes in the situation since the last time we spoke. I think one of the main ones and most important is that former special representative for Ukraine, Kurt Volker, resigned. We're going to hear more from him this week because the other big development is the House Intelligence Committee issued subpoenas specifically to Secretary Mike Pompeo, but also announced this week that they will be speaking with former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovic and Kurt Volker, and will have closed door hearings with Inspector General Michael Atkinson. We also learned that the whistleblower's lawyers are negotiating with Adam Schiff. There is an agreement that the whistleblower will testify in closed hearings to the House Intelligence Committee. The exact details of that are not confirmed as of the time that we're recording this podcast. There has been reporting, and some of it overblown, about the conversations that Schiff and the whistleblower's lawyers have been having. The whistleblower's lawyers specifically were unhappy with the coverage of this issue on 60 Minutes. We will link in the show notes the actual letter that the whistleblower's lawyers sent to acting DNI McGuire about their concerns for the whistleblower's safety. Part of that letter references a Washington Examiner report that two just, I'm sorry, wackadoo far-right individuals have issued a $50,000 bounty for information relating to the whistleblower's identity. And the lawyer said to acting DNI McGuire, unfortunately, we expect the situation to worsen and to become even more dangerous for our client and any other whistleblowers as Congress seeks to investigate this matter. So that conversation between the whistleblower's attorneys and the House Intelligence Committee is ongoing, but we do expect them to actually connect in person in a secure environment very soon. I kind of wondered if they will continue to talk about the negotiations to meet and then all of a sudden it will be they met, you know, because it's not like they're going to announce we've concluded the negotiations and now we will meet and then leave everybody on high alert for when that meeting might take place. So I wonder if that's what's going to happen. That seems like the most prudent course of action, especially because the president's conduct on Twitter is, I think, materially endangering this whistleblower. 
every time the president talks about how we used to treat spies, his right to confront this person in person, his right to know who gave this person the information, it's it's dangerous. So this is where we get into the middle ground, because arguably much of what the president tweets about is an attempt at messaging. He tweeted over 80 times this weekend, and much of it was retweets, amplifying some truly offensive messages. But then is it just messaging when it's the president of the United States? Is it just messaging when he is accusing Adam Schiff of treason? Is it just messaging when he is retweeting a pastor who said that impeachment could lead to a civil war? I mean, this is where we get into this really messy gray area where he is just tweeting, but because it is the president tweeting and because of the tenor of the things that he says on Twitter are so offensive and dangerous and energizing to people who could have really corrupt and dangerous intentions, then I think we're passing out of messaging. And it's really interesting. So much has been written about the comparison between this current impeachment inquiry and the impeachment of Bill Clinton and how they had that the Clinton White House had an impeachment war room. They really tried to compartmentalize. So they had messaging and um, responses ready to the impeachment. And then the president was free and the largely the administrative and White House staff was free to continue the work of the presidency. But because Donald Trump first of all, has very little communication staff at this point. Second of all, really doesn't trust anybody else with his communication. And third of all, doesn't seem concerned with doing any work outside, screaming about how unfairly he's being treated on Twitter. Then you have him occupying this space where he's basically out there being his own spin doctor and and tweeting and sharing and saying really dangerous things. I agree with you that I think this is something different than his normal Twitter usage. And I think it highlights the difference between the subject of the Mueller report Mm -hmm. and this situation surrounding Ukraine and record keeping as to the president's calls with Ukraine. Because if you think about the subject of the Mueller report, which I believe was very serious and cause for deep concern and would have justified the opening of an impeachment inquiry as well. He was not the president during those conversations, right? He is a candidate for the presidency, and one would hope that a major party's nominee running for the presidency would be held to a fairly high standard. But he wasn't the president then. This time, he brings the entire power of the presidency to every discussion. I heard Michael McFaul, the former ambassador to Russia on Meet the Press this weekend, say, everyone keeps talking about whether there was a quid pro quo. Understand that in diplomacy, everything is a quid pro quo. Mm. There's never something that is just a favor that has no reciprocation. Why would anyone do that when you're talking about international relations? And so in addition to the facts being a little easier to understand and a lot more direct, 
I think the fact that he is the president during this one makes it materially different than the first one. And then when you think about his tweets and him tweeting that Adam Schiff should be arrested and tried for treason, he's not saying that as a private citizen. He's saying that as the president. I feel like if you're sitting around wondering if he's really as bad as Democrats make him out to sound, you you need do nothing more than look at his timeline on Twitter for him to tell you himself that he is ready and willing to abuse the power of this office against American citizens at will, you know? One of the other big interviews that came out this weekend that I think blurs the line between are we just talking about messaging and people sharing their opinions of what's happening and is this news that really should affect our view of what's happening is the interview with Tom Bozert, the first Homeland Security advisor who was forced out by John Bolton, who spoke with ABC News over the weekend. Much of the reporting is messaging, which is, oh, there's a break in the Republican line. This loyal advisor said that he was deeply disturbed by the president's call. And let's share a little bit of that audio right now. It is a bad day and a bad week for this president and for this country if he is asking for political dirt on an opponent. But it looks to me like the other matter that's far from proven is whether he was doing anything to abuse his power and withhold aid in order to solicit such a thing. That seems to be far from proven, and it's going to be the focus of, I think, our Congress for the next year. So, yes, I think it's important that someone who advised the president and has been loyal to the president is willing to step out and say this was wrong. But to me, one of the bigger stories shared by him and reported on The New York Times is how much time he and other advisors spent trying to talk the president out of this conspiracy theory that it was Ukraine, not Russia, that intervened in the 2016 election, which is the first thing he mentions in the transcript of the call with Zelensky. So reading about the ways that he re continually rejected the opinion of the intelligence community and, you know, they would get him convinced and then he'd dive back in with the conspiracy theories in the far right media and start saying and talking about things that his own intelligence community had said, hey, this is not true is so problematic. And that is the nicest word I could think to describe that. And Rudy Giuliani seems to really be at the heart of that. From mm -hmm. Bossert's interview and what we read elsewhere, it sounds like Giuliani has never been willing to push back on the president and instead is constantly there to get him all spun up about whatever might make him feel better about his own election. And that, to mm -hmm. me is just a recurring theme that this president is consumed with that 2016 election and with making yep. sure everybody knows that he's really the president. It's maddening that the Republican talking point about impeachment right now is that Democrats are obsessed with the 2016 election, because it seems to me that the person who's obsessed with the 2016 election is this president. He cannot move on from this issue. And as Tom Bossert said, it's going to be his white whale. Yeah, I liked how he described it as his obsession with getting his pound of flesh. Like he wants revenge. He feels like somebody out there did this. I don't understand how you how you interpret a foreign country intervening for your benefit as somebody's out there to get you. Yeah, they were out to get you to get you elected. 
And I guess he sees the the Mueller probe and all that investigation that came out of that as somebody out to get him and to use something that was perfectly acceptable to undermine his presidency because he's already insecure about the results of the 2016 election, I guess. Here's what the Wall Street Journal says about Durham's investigation. And this is a direct quote. It appears that Ukrainian officials who backed the Clinton campaign provided information that generated the investigation of Mr. Manafort, acts that one Ukrainian court has said violated Ukrainian law and, quote, led to interference in the electoral processes of the United States in 2016 and harmed the interest of Ukraine as a state. Now, I don't know what to make of this. I don't know why the Wall Street Journal ran this in an opinion piece. I don't know what John Durham is going to tell all of us. What I do know is this is why we don't casually involve other countries in our electoral processes, because the best case scenario for countries who do not wish the United States well is for us to be confused about what the truth is. The best case scenario is for us to both sides everything. The best case scenario is for us to say, oh, you're corrupt. Well, actually, you're more corrupt. And to have us ping-ponging back and forth and not trusting anyone or anything. And that's why we cannot be so cavalier about this. And I cannot believe that any Republicans are reading that call memorandum that the White House released and trying to say, oh, this whistleblower thing is all hearsay. This gets to concerns I have about the reporting about polling, where Americans are in impeachment, how the Democrats are going to handle impeachment, how the 2020 candidates are speaking about impeachment, and this idea that because impeachment is a political question, and absolutely to a large extent it is, that Everything lives and dies on the latest poll and where Americans are moving. I mean, the first thing for me is the polling numbers are high. I mean, when you had the impeachment inquiry open with Nixon, it was like 10 percent. And you have in some polls over 50 percent of Americans supporting the impeachment inquiry. You're never I don't know what we're trying to get at where everybody can stop reporting about the polling. I don't know if we need 90 percent of Americans in favor, 75 percent of Americans in favor, 100 percent of independent voters in favor. But the obsession with polling this constantly, I think, leads to the idea that what we're trying to do here is sort of a majority rule on whether anything happened that broke the law. And that, to me, is is where the conversation about this particular impeachment inquiry is getting a little fuzzy. You know, I understand that people worry about whether or not the Senate will actually remove Donald Trump from office. I understand that people feel like Donald Trump, for his entire presidency, for lack of a better term, has gotten away with all manner of crimes and corruption. I understand that there are a certain amount of people that make up Donald Trump's base and they're not going to leave him no matter what. I even understand the idea that, well, he got here, he won the election, and we should use an election to remove him. But you can talk about all that and still very clearly delineate the concerns that the law was broken. And I don't care how many members of his base or how many independent voters or how many swing voters in Michigan think that we should move on. 
We don't vote on whether the law was broken or not. It's not a majority rules decision. We have processes that determine whether or not the law was broken. And if we're going to continue to value the rule of law and believe that they apply no matter what the polling or no matter how much the current person disregards that law, then we have to move forward here. And I, I just the the way it's spoken about and the way people, you know, just people I have conversations with in my everyday life are so flippant about this as if it's just it's just another news story and it doesn't matter because the Senate will never remove him. You know, inevitably, I say, have you read the complaint? And inevitably, the answer is no. But it, it just really bothers me that because there are politics involved here that we've somehow decided that if independent voters don't think we should investigate a clear violation of law, then nothing wrong happened. And that's that's not the case. Yeah, we're not a direct democracy for a reason. There are mm-hmm. certain things that we should expect people who know more about them to handle. And there are certain things that we should expect people to pay attention to when we can't make room to pay attention to it in our everyday lives. If you think about the issues that are arising right now from the news cycle, it is how is the reporting being done? It is Rudy mm-hmm. Giuliani and what role he is playing. Is he the president's lawyer? Is he some kind of envoy from the State Department? If so, what kind of process? have been in place around that? Like, what is he doing out there? Because what you're doing out there on the international stage at the behest of the president of the United States matters a lot. It is how the president is responding to this and whether his responses raise any legal issues. It is the safety of this whistleblower. It is how the Department of Justice handled this whistleblower complaint. The fact that our attorney general weighed in on a conversation about whether the whistleblower laws applied to this complaint, given that the president was the subject and concluded that they did not. You know, it is the fact that the State Department continues to review Hillary Clinton's emails and that they say that is routine and insulated from the political process, but it's being reported on as though it is the Trump administration just trying to throw that issue back into the news. It is the way the House committees are working. There's so much going on here. And I think the one takeaway I have for today is to be very deliberate about reading past the headlines to understand what's going on, to let the process unfold, and to recognize, as you just said so well, Sarah, that we don't raise our hands in this country to decide if something is wrong or not. Some things are just wrong, and we elect our representatives in order to have them stand up and say so. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets look just like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra-concentrated, liquidless laundry detergent. It's the best of all worlds. Earth Breeze is tough on stains and odors while being kind to the planet and your skin, so it's good for sensitive skin. It reduces plastic waste. All of these things are true and amazing, but let's get to the heart of it. Y'all know I have a laundry system. You know it revolves around training children as young as possible to do their own laundry. Earth Breeze sheets feels like they were invented for this. Because littles maybe sometimes struggle with those big, heavy jugs. Or maybe you worry about the pods, but here we go. Here we go, y'all. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets. It's like the perfect solution. A child as young as two can handle these sheets. And even with toddlers, like you can get them involved. And this is a way to get them helping with laundry even before they could do it themselves. Ugh, God, I love it so much. Right now, our listeners can receive 40% off Earth Breeze just by going to earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. That's earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit to cut out single-use plastic in your laundry room and claim 40% off your subscription. earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit.
We do quite a bit of hosting here at the Silvers household, and I think there is nothing that completes a table for dinner. Like a beautiful loaf of bread and wild grain has made that so simple because they send gorgeous loaves of sourdough bread. Lots of spins on the ingredients, but always just this fantastic, high quality, easy to bake in 25 minutes or less from frozen bread that turns out perfectly every single time. I also have to tell you about the free croissants for life that come with your wild grain orders. And those croissants make the morning, your brunch, maybe your late night snack flaky and like you're sitting in a French cafe and they're just perfect every single time. That's what I love about Wild Grain. It's easy, it's consistent, it's fully customizable. It is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. For a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. You heard me, free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit, or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. Beth, what's on your mind outside politics? We've had the Big Brother finale now, and I need to give you an update because I know that you just um, are not going to be engaging with reality television to the depth that I am. A few weeks ago. Can I, can I, I, this is the one where they live in the house, right? The one where they live in the house and they're watching all the money at some sort of $500,000 to the winner of Big Brother. Okay. So who's the last person in the house? The last person. So what happens is that everybody gets voted out until two people at the end, and then the folks that they voted out decide who wins the money between the two of them. Okay. So I wrote about Big Brother in our email newsletter earlier this season because a lot of what was happening on Big Brother has been really controversial this season. Mm. The first few people evicted were minorities. It felt very much like there was an in crowd and an out crowd and that there was a lot of sexism going on in the way people talked to each other, that there was racism in who was in that in crowd and out crowd. There was an older player who was really marginalized early in the season. He ended up doing very well. But There were a lot of dynamics that were generating tons of controversy in the Big Brother watching community, which I am a 
teeny tiny part of. I do not like tweet about it or watch anything other than what gets put into the produced show. But I was aware of all of this controversy and reading articles about it occasionally because, as our listener and friend Marjorie pointed out, like what happens on American reality television does have a pretty significant cultural effect. And so I was frustrated all season that I felt like CBS was not adequately stepping up to raise this topic with the players. Well, that all changed on finale night. And if you've not watched the finale yet, you might want to just jump ahead a bit because there will be spoilers here. So we get down to the last two people. The players who've been voted out are there to vote on the winner. And whereas the finale night conversation is usually sort of like, oh, you two seem to hit it off in the house. Do you think this showmance will last in the real world? Like real fluff nonsense that we often fast forward through. This time, Julie Chen was like, all right, everybody. So let's talk about the fact that a lot of viewers felt that your decision here was racist. <gasps> wow. And there were contestants who who said, like, I was bullied in the house. When you watch this back, I hope it makes you a better person. I mean, it was intense and it was uncomfortable. And she did all of this before the voting and the winner was announced. And when the winner walked out of the house, you could see he was devastated. Like there's confetti popping and he looks like he's been hit by a truck because you could see him just thinking like, what did I say? What did I do? And when she asked him how he was feeling, he said, you know, the most important thing to me is that my parents are proud and I hope that we're good. And I wanted to bring this up on the show because I think we're due for more like really uncomfortable moments like that as a country where we're not willing to just say, oh, the show must go on and here's what we normally do. But we sit for a second and we say, this this raised some questions. We need to talk about it. The reaction for most of the house guests who were sort of accused of bullying or having biases was like, I'm not sure what you're talking about. I certainly didn't mean that it was just game, but I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings. And one of the former contestants, Kimmy, said, I think people should know what they're apologizing for before they apologize. Mm, Like she just refused to accept the apology of like, I didn't mean it. I don't know what you're talking about, but I'm sure that I didn't mean it the way you said. Like she just wasn't having it. And I thought it was really healthy and important and a good example. I like that. I like that a lot. I think that that is starting to chip away at all the... (laughs) The bad ideas and instincts that and cultural trends that reality shows are responsible for. So good for you, big brother. I I thought Julie Chen wasn't on that show anymore. Oh, no, she is. And she introduces herself now. This is the other direction. But now she introduces herself as Julie Chen Moonves ever Mm. since that whole situation. So wait, they're still together? Oh, yes, they are. And she is very much backing him on that. So, you know, it's not all great news from CBS, but Mm -hmm. I did appreciate the way they handled this finale. What are you thinking about outside of politics? Well, I want to speak to something sort of related, I think, to this issue, which was an article in the New Republic called The Cancel Culture Con. And specifically, what this article is talking about is stand-up comedy and the pushback you see from largely older, largely pretty successful male comics against cancel culture, political correctness, 
the, the idea that they can't come to college campuses anymore. I had not been following this particular controversy, but Dave Chappelle had a new Netflix special and said some truly offensive things about Michael Jackson's accusers and children of sexual abuse, anybody who had been abused by Michael Jackson. And this article really pushes back against the idea that, oh, well, stand-up comics have to be allowed to crack jokes and figure out and, and push against societal norms. It starts with the story of Lenny Bruce, the, the comic from the 60s who was arrested for indecency. And I just thought it did a really good job of basically saying what really pushing against this, this phrase cancel culture. Like, what do we mean? Do we mean that you get criticized on the Internet? Because Dave Chappelle's doing just fine and still cashing lots of checks, um, as are several of the other comics that are so supposedly become victim of cancel culture. The article also looks to several essays that have been critical of cancel culture and leads in and lists all the things that have canceled and, oh, we're canceling kids. It talks specifically about the strangers. Katie Herzog, who wrote an essay about cancel culture, says the guilty party Herzog references with a link here is Kyler Murray, a football player who made an apology after winning the Heisman Trophy last year when it was discovered he had written homophobic tweets as a teen. Those curious about how low cancelization has brought Murray should tune into Fox next Sunday afternoon. He's now the starting quarterback for the Arizona Cardinals. And I just thought it was so good. Because, first of all, with you know, we all know I have a passion for stand-up comedy, and I think all of that is really fascinating. And I think they make a really good point of, you know, you're not you're not being censored. You're being criticized. And people are mad not only um, because your jokes are offensive, but because they're also not funny. And instead of changing and adapting and finding a way to be funny in a culture that changes and adaptive and adapts, Constantly, you want to stay stuck at your peak when you were allowed to be as offensive as you wanted to be and to make jokes um, on the backs of the LGBTQ community, on the backs of women, on the backs of racial minorities. And you're just mad that you can't do that anymore and that people don't think it's funny. And I think that is so fair. I think that stand-up comics and the comedy scene in general um, have become the thing that they claim to be criticizing, so sensitive um, to any pushback and the idea that, well, I can't, you know, comedy has to be wide open and I have to be able to say whatever you, whatever I want. No, comedy survives when it's funny. And if you can't be funny in the face of changing headwinds, then that's your fault and not the audience's. Um, and I just thought that the, the sort of takedown of the, all these essays that want to, um, oh, God, we're all on fire because there's cancel culture. And I'm a person that that has had beef with cancel culture in the past. But I, I thought that this new kind of, hey, what do we mean by cancel culture? Because often all these things that we list as canceled are, in fact, doing just fine and surviving and um, going on to continued success. I just thought it was a really, really good article. It's almost like we just need to talk about how we need a more productive way to address problems. Because you're right. A lot of what gets canceled goes on to thrive in no small part due to the backlash to the cancellation. Right. Yep. And my problem with what I would term cancel culture is always that it is genuinely unproductive to have a sea of people condemn someone online 
to do what the president of the United States does by bringing out people who are very extreme and are willing to take the conversation past, I don't want you on my TV anymore, to I don't want you alive anymore, right? And I don't think we need any of that. So it's like, how can we have a real discussion about someone legitimately did something wrong? There should be consequences. Those consequences should be calibrated to the wrong that they have done. And then we all go back to our lives. Well, and I think the most important part, which this article gets at, is distinguishing between somebody who has put themselves or their work into the public eye and someone who has not, who is just an ordinary citizen who perhaps got caught on camera doing something terrible or, you know, whatever the case may be. But to lump all those things together and to lump, you know, an ordinary citizen who is being doxxed with Kanye West, it's just it's not the same. And I don't want to hear that it is. I think we have to distinguish. If you put your work and yourself out there in the public out there in the public eye, I'm assuming that you understand that Twitter exists and that could lead to consequences for you. So I don't know. I thought this article did a really good job of starting to instead of doing the sort of classic thumbs up, thumbs down on cancel culture, really scratching at what we mean by that and the impact of Um, those criticisms, particularly on public figures. We are so glad that you all have joined us. And that's an interesting segue because on Friday, we plan to talk with you a little bit about Mm -hmm. the anniversary of the Me Too movement and kind of putting together some layers of that movement as we've gotten some distance from the initial learnings about people in positions of power abusing that power. Of course, we will continue to keep you posted on Instagram and Twitter and Patreon about the developments in impeachment over the week. And we'll talk again, I'm sure, about that on Friday. Until then, do your very best to keep it monster. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Our executive producers are Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, David McWilliams, Joshua Allen, Linda Rucker, Martha Bernatsky, Melanie Cravey, and Tiffany Hassler. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. 